Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 23 in the book of John, entitled Lazarus Come Out, where we discuss John chapter 11, verses 28 through 57. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis in his office. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Oh, we're going to see, other than Jesus' own resurrection, we're going to see the greatest miracle Jesus ever did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was It's just uh, staggering, the display of power. But it's not just any display. It's Jesus' direct power over death. And it doesn't matter how many days or years or decades or centuries it's been that we have been in the grave. He is able to call us out. And so this is our great Christian hope. That, that through faith in Christ we will live forever, that death will not be the final word for us. And so we have a, a great display of that, but there's so many details in here too that are going to be exciting to study. Sure. Well, let me go ahead and read it for us to set the stage, and then we'll talk through uh, just this incredible miracle and, and this picture of our Savior in John chapter 11. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish." He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. 
Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. First, Andy, as we come to this passage, how did Mary hear about Jesus' visit, and how does she respond? Well, it's amazing how Martha goes out to see him, and Mary stays behind. But then um, Martha, her sister, goes back and says, the teacher is looking for you and has asked for you, and so she gets up. And so I don't know what's exactly going on in, in Mary's heart, but she's, you know, she's contemplative. She's, I think, sweet in her heart, mm. uh, loves Jesus, tender, and uh, she's, she's not hostile at all, but she has to have a special invitation to come out and see Jesus. And when she goes, why did the crowd follow Mary, and why did God allow the crowd to be there? Well, I think the crowd is there for an audience to display and also to be witnesses. They're, Jesus is going to do an incredible miracle. And to have so many people testify to it, it could not be denied. And the crowd's there just doing what communities do when someone has died. And they're there to kind of express um, grief and sorrow. Sometimes at some of these settings, there are professional mourners that are hired to come and weep mm. and wail. Um, but I don't see any indication that that's what's going on here. But there's this huge crowd. Also, it's not far from Jerusalem. And so perhaps Lazarus and Martha and Mary are well known. And so they have a good circle of friends. Sure. And when Mary finally greets Jesus, her words echo the words of her sister Martha. Well, and, they're identical. <laughs> right. And, and it... It really, I think, leads in part to Jesus' reaction in verse 33, but she does. She says the same words, Lord, if you had been here, yeah. my brother would not have died. Right. Why, why did Jesus react the way he did at this point in the story, and what does his reaction teach us mm. about him? Mm. Well, first of all, with both Martha and Mary saying these things, there is somewhat of an accusation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we all are going to understand and we're going to face. Lord, why did you do this? And the psalmist do this. How long, O oh Lord? You know, I thought by now you would solve this problem, and you've not. Job questioned God's justice, later had to repent from it. So we humans who are suffering, we tend to ask questions, the why question. So if you had been here, my brother would not have died. First of all, we, if you know anything about Jesus, is here, healing mirrors, he doesn't, he doesn't need to be anywhere. He can just think it and it's done. He mm -hmm. didn't need to get up and go anywhere. So, but they're just distraught. They don't understand why Jesus delayed. They thought they got him in time. And they're just not understanding. But now the real question you ask is about his reaction. And it's quite powerful. And it doesn't even come across very well in the English language or in any uh, translation. It says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was, the scripture says, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Well, these are actually great understatements. Hmm. First of all, let's understand what's triggered this feeling, their sorrow, their grief. So he has compassion on his people for the sorrow and grief that this death has produced. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus uh, raises the only son of a widow in Nain, he doesn't do anything but first goes to the woman and says to her, don't cry. Mm. That's before he's done anything. Just goes right up to this grieving woman who has no provision in this world and says, don't cry. That's like top priority is to address the feelings of his people. So Jesus, out of his compassion, 
feels the pain that this death is causing. Mm. But I think he goes beyond that. He goes beyond to the general pain that death always causes and that death will cause. And so as he extrapolates over the future career of death and all of the broken-hearted mothers and fathers that bury children and spouses that bury beloved spouses and children that bury beloved, bury beloved parents and friends, it just goes on and on. It's, it's a catalog a, a, a almost immeasurable well of grief and sorrow mm. that Jesus can expand his mind and his heart to take in. And so the Greek words used here, translated deeply moved in spirit and troubled, are, are really overpowering and intense. I wouldn't have known about them except that B.B. Warfield, Presbyterian theologian in the 19th century, wrote a great work on this entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And the word apparently in the Greek has to do with a kind of a rage, like a snorting, intense, like a horse about to, to run with eyes of fire and snorting to run into battle. There's a sense of just almost volcanic rage, but it's got this prefix on it, the Greek word does, which shows it's all internal. Mm. So he is seething with rage. But then Warfield, B.B. Warfield, just expands it. Who is he angry at? And he goes through the possibilities. Is he really angry at Mary? Is he angry at Martha? No, not at all. Tremendous compassion for them. Is he angry at the Jews that are there? No, how, I mean, they're not on, really on the radar screen. Who is he angry at? Well, he's angry at death. And, and, and again, we need to understand this. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul personifies death, saying, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? So Jesus looks at death, as Paul says in that very chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, as his enemy, his hated enemy, and what he would give to destroy it. And here's the thing. Fundamentally, he is in charge of death, and he'll prove it by raising Lazarus from the dead, and by his own resurrection especially. Mm. And he says, I was dead, Revelation 1, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. So he's in charge. Yeah. And yet, he's not going to destroy it yet. It's the final enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death. So death is going to have its way with us, Wes, and we're going to cry. We're going to grieve. We're going to go to funerals. We're going to do them in, in ministry. We're going to be at them for, as friends, and we're going to cry like Mary and mm -hmm. like Martha. And so Jesus would love to rip death apart, and someday he will. Someday it says, like in Revelation 20, death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. So we're looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. And this, this emotional display continues after he asks where they've laid him. Right. Uh, they tell him, Lord, come and see. And then this famous two-word verse, verse 35, it says, yeah. Jesus wept. If Jesus yeah. knew he was about to raise Lazarus, yeah. why, why does he weep here? Yeah, it just weeps because of the, of the pain mm. that death will cause, has caused, and will cause um, to his people. Mm. I mean, you think about um, a very good example on this in the Old Testament is Jacob. I mean, he, he talked about burying Rachel. He said, there to my great sorrow, Rachel died, and there I buried her. Buried her you know? So you think about the incredible love he had for Rachel from the moment he first saw her. And then her children, you know, and it was wrong for him as a father to play favorites, but he probably more than any father I've ever heard of played <laughs> favorites, okay? Joseph, mm. Benjamin, okay? <laughs> These are Rachel's children. And so when he saw Joseph's robe covered in blood, 
He just said, I'm going to go down to the grave in sorrow. Mm. The rest of my life, I'm going to cry for this boy. And, you know, for me as a father of five children, I think about God, the last thing, I don't want to die. I don't want any of my children to die before I do. I want to die before them. Mm. And I think every parent feels that way. There's no one that would not exchange the, themselves for their kids. And so I think he weeps out of compassion for his people and all the damage, the pain that death is going to cause. Mm. And how do the Jews respond to Jesus' emotional display here? They're divided. <laughs> they always are. <laughs> typical. Yeah, yes. Typical. They have two different reactions. It's like, oh, isn't it wonderful how he, how he loved him? It's like, well, then why didn't he show up? Everyone's asking the same question. Where was he? He, mm. could have, he could have healed the man. He opened the eyes of the man born blind. He could have healed his friend. And so they're questioning him. And so, as usual, the reactions are different. But for me, I'll just stick with the first Jews as they react. They just say, behold how he loved him. And he did love him, and he did love, um, you know, his, his um, uh, Martha and Mary, the whole family. And Jesus' strong emotion appears again in verse 38. Yep. Is it the same cause here? Is this something same different? Same thing, and he's, he's moving on. And, and I think it really is amazing because he's about to, to bring great joy to them by raising Lazarus mm -hmm. from the dead. But keep in mind, he is merely, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but he's merely resuscitating Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus is going to die again. Mm -hmm. And Martha's going to die, and Mary's going to die, and all of them, you know, and, and he himself has yet to die. And so there is still a, a battle to be fought. Mm. And Jesus here, in response to death, gives a command, mm. right? Why does, why does Martha hesitate at his response to yeah. Lazarus's death? So take away the stone. Must be talking to some strong young men there, because there's mm. this big boulder that gets rolled in front of, it, in front of the stone. So... But Martha is, she is just so consistent. There's like, you know, X number of interactions we have in the scripture with Martha. And she's the same person in every one of them. And, she, and she's extremely practical minded. And so she's like, by this time, there's going to be a bad odor. You don't want to remove the stone. Mm. And you have to think of the, the unique responsibilities of women frequently like taking care of bodies, you know, there weren't undertakers back then. And so like, she just knows. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a, a practicality, but we also have to realize um, the body that is sown, it's sown in dishonor. Keep that in mind. That's a, that's a strong statement. There are four things said about the natural body, four things in couplets are said about the resurrection body. Mm. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. And so the dishonor to dying is corruption. It is the decay. It's worms. It's, it's smell. Um, it's just part of it. And it's hard to look at a loved one after you know, he's, he or she has died in a car accident or from a disease. And, and it's just very, very difficult to look at their bodies. So he says, take away the stone. And she reminds him about the bad odor. Mm. And she also says, and it's important for us, he's been there four days. That's four days in the tomb. It's incredible. Mm. When Jesus then pivots here, you mentioned that couplet, right? Mm -hmm. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. He yeah. he. I think keys in on that very mm -hmm. idea when in the next verse he expresses the motive of really everything he does in his ministry, but maybe speak to that a little bit. He, he wants her to understand why he's going to do what he's about to do. Yeah, everything he does is for the glory of God. And this is going to be the most glory that he's ever going to bring to his father other than his own death and resurrection. And so he said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So um, here's another thing. Just don't ever challenge or rebuke or stop or correct Jesus 
mm. ever at anything. Mm. When he says, take away the stone, there's one answer. Yes, Lord, take away the stone. Mm. It's that simple. Peter made that mistake again Same and again. <laughs> Challenging, no, but Lord. <laughs> it's like, no. And, and I have to learn that too. It's like when he tells you to do something, just do it. And so, but he's, he explains, he is a teacher and he says, look, if you believe you're gonna see, this isn't about bad odor today, this is about glory. Mm. And I wanna zero in on that. What is the connection between faith and seeing the glory of God, both for Martha and, and for us today? Well, again and again, in many times, many settings, I've said that faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. So eyesight of the soul, if you believe, you'll see glory. Mm. If you don't, you won't. And his enemies, they don't see glory in this. They decide to add Lazarus to the hit list. They're going to assassinate him. I mean, so they're not seeing glory, they see threat. But if you believe, you'll see this as what it is, a display, of a radiant display of the attributes of God. And in this particular one, I think we would just say, well, a lot of them, love, compassion, but simply power. Mm. God has power, he can do anything. And so if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Yeah. And in the next verses here, in verses 41 and 42, we really get a picture of uh, prayer and Jesus expresses some things about why he prays mm -hmm. in this setting uh, as well as the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And yeah. these verses culminate in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Mm -hmm. What what was involved in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? Yeah. What did Jesus do? Well, I, I tell you what, I love, I love the prayer mm. um, and so he doesn't do anything without the Father. So the prayer, he says, I'm praying this for the people listening. Hmm. But I love the simplicity, the childlike, you know how Jesus in Gethsemane says, Abba, Father. Hmm. He's got that tender Father. He said, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. That's it. That's his prayer. But I'm saying this for the people standing around. And, and you know, it's just the same thing with Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel. It's just a very simple prayer. There's not a lot to it. Um, and so Jesus talks about the pagans who think they'll be heard for their many words. Mm. You know, Jesus isn't like that. He said, Father, thank you. Now let's raise him. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's do this. nothing else to wow. say. And just that, but again, he doesn't do it apart from prayer. Mm. So the, it, he's not on his own. He's not independent. He does everything at the will of the Father. So the Father wants him to be there. It's the same thing Elijah said, mm -hmm. that I have done everything at your command. I did everything that you wanted me to do. Jesus even more so. So he says, I thank you. And then, you know, the stone is removed. Get the picture of it completely dark in there, black hole. And, um, you know, he just, at that point, he just, after the prayer, he just says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. That's it. So uh, there's no, it's, it's like John 9 with the man born blind. There's not much in the technique, you know, it's just simply Lazarus, come forth. Mm. I love the beginning of verse 44 understatement of the century is, you know, the man who had died came out. It like came that, out. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, pause. That that doesn't happen, right? This, oh. But when Jesus calls Lazarus' name, it says, he came out. He came out. Mm. And and again, um, it's, it's just the miracle of new life, the miracle of new birth. This is a, for me, all of Jesus' miracles are physical realities that happened in space and time. That makes me an evangelical, mm. so I believe in the miracles. Plus, plus, they are spiritual analogies or parables, living yeah. parables. They are pictures of our spiritual salvation. So when Jesus calls us, my sheep listen to my voice, 
we come out of death. Uh, we, we hear him. We hear his voice. We recognize it. And then we're given a command, something to obey. Okay? In, in Lazarus' case, it's come out or come forth. So he comes out. In our case, it's repent and believe the gospel or call on the name of the Lord, things like that, but we do it. And so there's, the, there's that. And, and again, I've, I've noted this in terms of, of Calvinist doctrine or Reformed theology, etc. Mm -hmm. When you are healed, there's really only one right thing to do, and you know it. It's like to obey what he says. And so you have a choice to stay in the tomb or to come out into the sunshine. And 100% of those that are called like this are going to come out. Mm. And so that's effectual grace. So he hears the voice of Jesus. And with that voice, this is that, that, that um, physical calling. Many are called, but few are chosen. So evangelists, pastors, we can speak the words. Lazarus come out, repent and believe in the gospel. That can, we can speak the words. But then there's a deeper power work that goes on that brings the dead person to life that we cannot do. Mm. And that's something that happens all at once with the statement, Lazarus come forth. Mm. What an incredible picture of yep. our salvation. Yep. It's very helpful. The sign of the resurrection, again, produces two outcomes among the people. We consistently mm -hmm. see this theme. We even mentioned it yeah. earlier in this same passage. Yeah. How do the people respond to Lazarus being raised? Well, um, before I go on, I, I heard something by Charles Spurgeon, and he's talking about the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. And he's saying, unlike Lazarus, at our resurrection, we won't have to have anyone say, take off the grave clothes and let mm. him go. See, Lazarus was resuscitated into the old life, and he had to be unwrapped. Yeah, <laughs> but in our resurrection, there's no take off anything and let us go. We will be free. I mean, it's and we'll be in white robes and and radiant and shining. And so, but to answer your question, um, you know, there are again always two reactions. Um, in verse 45, it says, "Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in Him." Mm -hmm. Now we need to realize Jesus will make it very plain. Believe on the evidence of the works. So the works are a valid ground for believing in Jesus. Anyone who can do that, I believe he's the son of God. And so they did. However, his enemies basically said, it's time to really get together because he's getting way too powerful. We've got to kill him. Mm -hmm. So this is, there's no glory here for them. They hate Jesus, and now they're even more threatened by him than ever before. Yeah. And what were the Jewish leaders that gather after this resurrection? What are they most afraid of? And does it appear that they care about the truth? Well, they're afraid of losing their position, their place in the world. They're afraid of lo losing you know, all the P's, which is power, position, pleasures, possessions, all of that, all the P's, you know, the, the stuff the world has to offer. And they're afraid, and they're afraid of the Romans. Uh, the Romans are always in the backdrop. The Romans run the physical world, but they don't run the, the universe. And so they're afraid of losing, that, that Jesus is going to be so wildly popular that they, he'll be seen as a king leading an insurrection, and the Romans are going to come and sweep the whole thing away. So that's what, what they're afraid of. Mm. Well, the outcome of their gathering, really what happens kind of in the midst of it, is an incredible prophecy yeah. from the chief priest. Can you take a moment and just walk us through what happens here and yeah. why this is so significant. All right, so it's Caiaphas. Mm -hmm. We need to understand a little bit about Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was Annas' um, son-in-law, I believe. 
and uh, Annas had was the real high priest. He was the he was the godfather, like you know, a mafia crime scene. He was he was in charge of the crime syndicate, and it was a crime. Mm. They used the temple concession system, the animal sacrificial system, as a river of silver wow. flowing into their coffers. The money changers. All right, so they are very threatened by Jesus. Jesus has cleansed the temple, or will have by the time the gospels over twice, and so it, he they hate him. And Caiaphas, who's more of a puppet high priest, says, you know, they're saying, well, what can we do? What are we doing? And, and they're going back and forth. He gets up and says a rather sweeping statement. You know nothing at all. It's like, yes, it's the arrogance here. It's like, you know nothing at all. He said, um, don't you realize it's expedient or best for one man to die in the nation, not perish? Well, that's incredible because John said he prophesied. Mm -hmm. God just used his hateful mouth with its bizarre motives, not at all what God would mean by that, not what the Apostle Paul would mean in terms of substitutionary atonement. Mm -hmm. But he was talking about it's better to kill this one guy and we all get to keep doing our scam here. Um, but the language fits exactly the idea that Jesus would die for the sins of the whole nation and not only for that nation, but for the world, for mm -hmm. for all of the scattered children of God, he says, to bring them together and make them one. Now that's incredible. But the ultimate work is unity. That's why I've said before, like it says in Ephesians 1, that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things together in heaven and on earth and make them one. Jesus uses, or, or John uses the same language here, that Jesus would die. Mm. Uh, for the not for that nation only the Jews, but for all the scattered children of God, scattered like a fragmentation grenade to bring them together and make them one. Beautiful statement. One last thing, this also shows there's nothing nothing in particular about a prophet. Okay, a prophet could be literally a donkey, could be Balaam who's in it for the money, could be uh, Caiaphas who's in it for the money. Two of them were wicked, or they could be genuinely godly people. Gen gen generally, they were. But prophecy just means that the Spirit of God comes. I mean, Saul, is Saul also among the prophets, falls on the ground and prophesies. So um, it's just the power of God comes on somebody and they say something that lines up with God's purposes. They say the Word of God. Mm. I've always thought this is amazing. And, and John is helpful throughout the book in giving mm -hmm. us commentary, helping us understand what's going on here, yeah. reminding us that... Uh, the Lord is doing incredible things, even through uh, the mouth of these chief priests here. Yeah. And verse 53 has also always been striking to me that from that day on, seemingly from the day that Lazarus was raised, they made plans to put him to death. So this, this miracle of resurrection leads ultimately to their vindictive, murderous ambitions being uh, brought to life and brought to light in, in their hearts and in their actions. As we close out this chapter, what do we learn about the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry uh, from these last few verses? Well, everything had been preordained and it had been um, worked out by the plans and purposes of God, as the church said, and they prayed in Acts chapter 4, um, that he was, he was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Um, and he, in, in doing this, they fulfilled scripture. But Jesus, by doing this miracle a couple of miles, I think, two miles, something like that from Jerusalem, the heat is majorly on mm. under, the, under the pot. I mean, just uh, yesterday, I think I put uh, some garlic bread under the broiler and forgot about it. 
<laughs> broiler. Mm. You don't forget things you put under the broiler. We're talking 40 Not seconds. For long, yeah. <laughs> like, so I smelled the smell, and it's like, ah, mm. what did I do? And, I, and they were black. Um, and so you can picture just the heat. The high heat is on, and things are going to start moving very quickly. His hour is coming. Mm. Andy, what final thoughts do you have for mm. us as we wrap up John 11? John 11 is, I think, the greatest chapter for Christians who are grieving the death of a loved one. Mm. Walk through it. And, and Jesus' tenderheartedness, his intentionality, his purpose is intentionally ling lingering so that Lazarus would die, so they'd realize he has power over death. Um, the fact that he's compassionate, that he weeps, that he cares about these two women. So often it's women that are there caring and grieving and weeping, and the men are a little more stoic. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, whoever you are, and the promises, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And Jesus weeping. There's just a beautiful mixture of power and compassion here. You're going to see the same thing in Isaiah 40. It's the same thing. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers them tenderly in his arms and, and gently leads those that are young. And then he also marks the heavens off with the span of his hand. He's immense and overwhelming and powerful. And he weeps and picks you up in his arms and holds you. You get all of that in this one chapter. Mm. Well, praise the Lord for John 11 and the time that we've been able to spend walking through that together. Amen. Well, this has been episode 23 in the book of John. We'd invite you to join us next time for episode 24, entitled, Behold, Your King is Coming, where we'll discuss John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.